It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Is your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone. And Genesee Health Plan can help. I called and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, healthcare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. If you believe it's the president's responsibility to protect America, why would you downplay a pandemic that is known to disproportionately harm low-income families and minority communities? Yeah. Well, I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. My action was very strong. Yeah, because what I did was uh, with China, I put a ban on. With Europe, I put a ban on. And we would have lost thousands of more people had I not put the ban on. So that was called action, not with the mouth, but in actual fact. We did a very, very good job when we put that ban on. Whether you call it talent or luck, it was very important. So we saved a lot of lives when we did that. We created, I created, we all created together. You helped everybody. The fact is, we created the greatest economy in the history of the world. Best employment numbers for African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, women, everything. The best employment, high school, no high school, college. We had the best economy we've ever had. 160 million people, almost, just short of 160 million people. We were never close. And then somebody comes in, and then somebody else, doctors, and they start talking about the pandemic and about clothes. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, so you know what that means. Armchair politics is coming up during the second and third hour of our three-hour tour today, as we do each and every Wednesday in the second and third hour of the show. We have our weekly roundtable with roundtable regulars, uh, Flint's premier 
political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. They'll be joined this week by uh, Politico Emeritus Woodrow Stanley for our uh, our weekly roundtable where we'll talk about uh, local, state, and national headlines and uh, current events and uh, lots more. We'll have quotes and the, the uh, this week's uh, X-Files, all of the things uh, that uh, accompany our weekly roundtable armchair politics on the Tom Sumner program. We open the show up today with a little snippet from uh, last night's town hall with undecided voters uh, hosted by ABC's uh, George Stephanopoulos with uh, President Donald Trump. We're going to have some more of those excerpts coming up toward the uh, the end of the hour but uh, but first, we're going to have um, on, on the show an encore presentation of an interview I did with uh, author and historian uh, Stephen, uh, yeah, Stephen Levingston. And he wrote a book called Barack and Joe. And if you uh, haven't heard, it's a fairly interesting uh, interview about the relationship that developed between Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And uh, and we'll have that uh, that interview. Um, also, kind of excited about this uh, coming up on Friday during the uh, first hour of the show um, at uh, nine o'clock, most places. Um, we're going to have uh, some people from Sesame Street talking about some different programs that the Sesame Workshop. Is, uh, is working on. We'll have um, Maria will be uh, on the show and uh, the character Rosita will be on the show as well to talk about uh, some things that uh, Sesame Street is doing for military families. And uh, it, it should be it should be fun. It should be fun. I always I always like to make Fridays kind of uh, kind of fun. Anyway, did you uh, did did you watch the town hall last night? I I, I think I saw most of it, and uh, it was it was kind of interesting. And we saw a little, a slightly different President Donald Trump than we than we are used to seeing. The the one that's more combative. This one was a little bit more human. I'm sure we'll talk about that and uh, more with our with our political roundtable coming up at 10 o'clock, um, armchair politics. And uh, with that, um, I guess we just have uh, oh, just a minute or so left until, uh, until we get into it with Stephen Levingston about his book, Barack and, uh, Barack and Joe. So um, don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. Um, if you're listening to us on 92.1 FM, our voice is radio. Stay tuned if you're streaming us. Um, you know, keep keep the uh, keep the tab open, and uh, we'll we'll get into it with uh, Stephen Levingston. Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner. Thank you. 
And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of Little Demon in the City of Light and Kennedy and King, which was named a New York Times Editor's Choice selection and a Washington Post notable book for 2017. The nonfiction book editor of the Washington Post has lived and worked in Beijing, Hong Kong, New York, Paris, and Washington, and reported and edited for the Wall Street Journal and International Herald Tribune. He has a new book uh, about the partnership between uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. It's called Barack and Joe, aptly enough, (laughs) the making of an extraordinary partnership. And it uh, comes out this week. Uh, I'm talking about Stephen Levingston. Steve, welcome to the show. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't know that that's the longest introduction I've ever given, but uh, it's it's probably going to make the top ten. Um, but let me let me ask this, um, Steve. A lot of people refer to Barack and Joe as as having a bromance. They became very very good friends during their tenure uh, during uh, Barack Obama's administration, um, but it didn't start out that way. They served uh, in the Senate together. Mm-hmm. Yes, they did. They they first came upon each other in the Senate um, when Barack Obama was just elected. And um, he came in kind of as a superstar, having given a tremendous speech at the Democratic National Convention in 2004, which sort of anointed him as the new face of the Democratic Party. So he was a celebrity, and he came in, and he was young, and he was dynamic, and he was cool. But... Um, Joe Biden had been in the Senate for about 30 years, or a little more than 30 years, and he was a different kind of character. He was, you know, of the Senate. He, he believed in the hierarchy and the traditions. And here came here came Barack. I mean, here came Barack Obama, um, who was kind of impatient with everything. He wanted to to get things moving and and sort of um, was impatient with the way the style and the and the and the, the, the slowness of the way things moved in, in the Senate. And one of those people who kind of was responsible for the style was um, um, Joe Biden himself, because he was known, as everyone knows, for being kind of long-winded. So they didn't really hit it off too well right at the beginning. Um, and they had to sort of evolve from there, which they did. I mean, they they went down the road together and evolved, began that way, and they they um, transformed their relationship over time into something that really turned into a, a profound friendship over the years. And that that began in the Senate. Um, was there uh, was was that evolving friendship interrupted a little in the uh, during the primary campaign for the 2004 election? Exactly. Um, <laughs> I would think. Yeah. It hadn't quite evolved yet, shall we say. Um, They, you know, they both wanted to be um, president in in 2008. Um, Barack, even though he... Oh, that's right. I went back too far. It was 8 and 12. Yes, yes. They both both wanted to to run. They both ran for president in 2008. Um, You know, Barack, when he came into the Senate, said he was was not concerned with that. He wasn't going to run. But a lot of people were pressuring him, and he wanted to be president for a long time. So, of course, he he threw his hat in and started going. Well, that Um, that pressure kind of began when he gave uh, the convention speech. Yes. Yeah, immediately... um, Immediately after that, he, you know, people started uh, saying, 
your time is coming. It may be here now. And he had to sit back and sort of think a lot about that and say, well, um, do I do it now? Do I grab this moment when I'm hot or do I try to do it later? And, um, you know, in the political world, if you're hot, you're hot now. Um, Bernie Sanders is sort of finding that out this year as opposed to the last time he ran. Um, he was he was really hot last time, and this time it's not so hot. So Obama sort of understood that the, the, the importance of hotness, and he he ran with it. And that you know a presidential primary campaign isn't the best place to make friends, especially if you're running against another man. So Barack and Joe really you know weren't on a path toward friendship at that time. It had to come after um, after um, Joe dropped out. And and how did that um, evolve? Did it evolve because of their relationship in the in the Senate, or um, or did it start after Joe was asked or selected to be on the ticket? Well, I think they both sort of started to see um, virtues in each other. Um, Obama, you know, had had seen Biden perform during the debates during during the primary campaign in 2008, and he was kind of surprised. He thought he would be kind of a bloviator and would be off off um, topic and whatnot. But he was very focused, and he was really considered one of the best debaters. On top of that, um, he knew that Biden had this great long experience in the Senate, which he didn't have. Um, and if you were to become president, you needed somebody who could work with the Senate. Um, Biden was attractive for that reason. Biden also had a lot of foreign affairs experience, and he was considered a bit of an expert, and that was something else that um, um, Obama came up short on. So as they sort of looked at each other, they began to see that there was there was something kind of attractive about the other guy. Biden, um, who was sort of a little hesitant about Obama at the beginning, began to look at him and see that this guy is pretty masterful. He, he knows what he's doing. He's incredibly smart and... Um, and uh, he, he looks like he, he could really could really make it. So they gradually came together there until um, you know Obama decided to uh, try him as a possible running mate. As as I remember uh, that campaign in two thousand eight, Barack Obama did not do particularly well in debates early on, but his learning curve was really fairly obvious to everybody that was watching. He got better with each debate. That's exactly right. And that's why he was so kind of enamored of, of Biden, because his first debate, Obama's first debate, he was he was pretty bad. He, you know, he was sort of didn't seem to have the energy and the, and the focus. And he, he just didn't come off as well as, as Biden did. So he felt, you know, there was, might be something there to learn um, from the older guy. Was that the uh, the, the campaign where... Uh, Biden was uh, on the debate stage and, and some pundit asked a, a really complicated question with, with a lot of context and stuff, and Joe simply answered with the word no. Yeah, I think, I think that one of those debates was it. You know, they put him up, and, and the question, I think, was, would you be able to, you know, be focused and do all these things? Would you be able to answer things in a very simple, quick sort of a way? And everybody thought, you know, Biden would come back and go into the long, elaborate answer. And he just said, yeah. <laughs> Gave the one-word answer, yep. <laughs> which surprised everybody. More with journalist and author Stephen Levingston about his book, Barack and Joe, straight ahead. 
Tanawa everybody, it's me, Tigger, T-I-Double-G-R, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, here Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use MasterCharge or Visa, Canadian residence, add $3.
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner program.com. The Tom Sumner program.com. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. More with journalist and author Stephen Levingston about his book, Barack and Joe, straight ahead. Once the... Was their relationship already starting to meld before Joe Biden was selected to run as uh, Barack Obama's vice presidential candidate, or did that evolve on the campaign trail? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, um, one thing I should mention also, what Biden found so attractive about um, Obama after first being a little hesitant about him when he first came into the Senate was the way he handled that controversy, if you if you recall, about Jeremiah Wright, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who was um, Obama's pastor. And into the campaign, it was I think it was in March, before Obama had won the nomination, and he was kind of surging, and he was looking good. Um, one of the news channels did an investigative report and found a lot of um, reports and video of Reverend Wright, who was um, Obama's pastor, giving very inflammatory, racially inflammatory um, sermons. And this caused a huge um, outcry and a big controversy. Obama hadn't done anything wrong. He was just associated with this man. So now uh, Obama had to deal with this in some way, and he came at it in a really a brilliant way. He, he just decided, I'm going to have to talk about this. I'm going to come out and give a major speech on race. And he did that at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, I think it was. And he just aced it. It was an amazing speech where he talked about the history of race in America. And, you know, he said, you know, some of the things he certainly disapproves of in his reverend, but he understands where that's coming from, from the black population. And he basically gave a lesson to America on 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 race and racial tolerance and, and racial history in America. And Biden saw that, and he was completely blown away. He told one of his aides, one of his aides told me about how he said, that was really the best speech I think I've ever heard a politician ever give. And this, this aide told me that it was really a click moment for for Joe Biden in the sense that he now had this newfound respect and admiration for this incredible man who was able to, to, to speak so eloquently on a very delicate subject. And David Axelrod, who was, who was Obama's um, advisor, he said that what that speech was was at a moment when his, his campaign was in a great moment of peril, he actually turned it around and turned it into a triumph. And Obama saw that. And so gradually they started to confer a little bit more on the campaign trail. And they started to see what was good about each other until finally Obama um, decided he wanted this man to, to be his, his running mate after he got the nomination. Although, it, it, as I recall, it wasn't quite that, that simple. Um, wasn't there a, a, a period of time where people were speculating whether he was going to ask Hillary to be the vice president and Joe to be the secretary of state? There was some talk about that, and, and they, they thought about it. But from what I gathered, um, 
Obama was never terribly serious about having um, Hillary as his as his running mate, because I think, as he put it, there would be three of us in the picture. It would be Obama, Hillary, and Bill Clinton. And he didn't want to have to deal with um, Bill being as partly involved in everything as well. So it was better to have her maybe, you know, working at state and and Joe being his his main guy and um, as the vice president. I saw Bill Clinton speak once, and, and he referred to uh, Hillary's position as Secretary of State as that traveling job. <laughs> well, it was. She certainly was on the road. Um, but with um, but but with Joe, and and I just wanted to make this one comment about the uh, race speech that uh, Barack Obama gave, because uh, as I remember it, he was trying very hard to stay away from that issue as much as possible. Yeah. And uh, and then he makes this very eloquent speech. I think people started calling him uh, the professor in chief, yeah. or, or something like that. Right. Yeah, that's why I refer to it as sort of like he gave a lesson. He was giving yeah. a lesson to America and everybody who was listening that you know these are the things we need to understand. You know about the the racial history in America, and he laid it out really eloquently and and. Um, had a lot to say, and you know he was a former professor. He used to teach in law school, and um, but it, it wasn't professorial. It was more, very much on the level, you know. And um, it was it was just so impressive. Now with with Joe, um, we've talked about him being a little bit long winded, but he's become somewhat known for making gaffes. Did that come with Joe, or did that come with the vice presidency? I think that came with Joe. That's um, <laughs> he's born and bred for gaffing, and and I think he knows that. And you know, in some ways, I think it goes back to his childhood. Um, you know, he was a he had a bad stutter when he was a child, and he had to work very hard to overcome it. And, you know, he was a guy who was also very outgoing and gregarious. And so it was kind of ironic that here's a guy who wants to speak so much, but he has this stutter that keeps him from doing it. But he worked so hard to overcome it, he became quite a speaker, and he was he was able to be fairly fluent. But, as I think his mother would say, there was a sort of a little disconnect between his, his brain and his mouth sometimes, and things came out wrong. And, you know, he developed this reputation for just being authentic and speaking from the heart because he just wanted to get out what he wanted to get out. And sometimes it came out really great, and other times it came out kind of mixed up or he chose the wrong words or he he just didn't get it right. Um, But I think, you know, that was one of the things that Obama, you know, in his wisdom and and his compassion sort of understood, and he really looked past a lot of the gaffes. He didn't think that the gaffes were that important. And another aide of his, you know, told me that he just, he didn't think about them as being important. He kept his eye on the, on the long game and he didn't get too caught up in the changing um, news cycle from moment to moment. The, the moment to moment changes were not important. And she told me that it was the same thing with the relationship. He just wanted to keep that relationship solid and firm and not get caught up in the ups and downs of the day-to-day activity. How much do you think this book will uh, inform people considering Joe as a uh, potential president? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And I, um, I mean, I, I have to sort of you know companion that with the question of you know why why this book now? 
Right, right. Well, I, I certainly didn't intend it to be to be like this. And um, to my mind, when I first was thinking of this book and writing this book, and it is a book that is contained in history, a short history ago, it's contained really to the White House years, and it, it ends really with just Joe announcing his, his candidacy this you know past year in, in April. Um, and I don't really get into the politics. And I, I didn't want it, and I don't want it to be a political book. It's really a relationship book. It's about two guys who really created a White House partnership, friendship, relationship that had never existed before in American history. And the, the point of my delving into this was to sort of see how did those dynamics work? How did this come about? What was it about these characters that, that was able to to get over the fact that they were running the world, you know, or running America and were for the most powerful nation in the world, and yet were able to go out and have good times together, were laughing and enjoying themselves, and, and just sort of had this real decency with each other. That's something we'd never seen before. And that's how I conceive the book, and that's sort of how it's written. Um, it's not meant to be a political book. It's not meant for people to really look at it in terms of the, of the campaign today. But in terms of the campaign today, I think if people read it, they'll see um, the kind of man that Joe is, and the kind of man that he was as vice president. And they'll also see, I mean, I'm not a Biden partisan. I'm not, you know, I don't have a horse in this in this race of the of the primaries. But they will see that the man, you know, had a lot of on-the-job training, and he was in the room with Obama and watching and learning from Obama and how he um, he ran his, his administration, which was, you know, quite effective. I, and I want to go back to the, the decision-making for selecting him as the, uh, as the vice presidential candidate, because historically, vice president, uh, the, the, whoever is selected as uh, to to bring up the the ticket is that's usually a decision based on uh political connections geography um and and very often the the two people the the president and the vice president don't have any real love lost between them um was this decision made on what Joe brought to the ticket in terms of uh, uh, political connections and geography, or was this more personality? You got a fairly young guy on the ticket, one with more experience, one that's, uh, uh, you know, the new kid on the block and, you know, one that's been around for a while. Was it was it more about personality? Well, actually, I think it became about personality. I think you hit on it at the beginning of your question there, that it, it really was more of a, a political marriage to begin with, as these things usually are. I mean, um, as we were talking about a little earlier, Joe brought a lot to the table for, for Obama, the young guy, not a lot of experience. Joe had a lot of experience in the Senate um, with foreign affairs. Um, and there was also the geographic um, thing that you mentioned. He was, you know, strong with the working class, the mid Midwest. Um, he had a lot of those kind of qualities that um, helped the ticket. Um, but what was interesting and why this became such a unique relationship was that once they made that political marriage, it became something a little bit more. Um, you know, as I write about in the book, and people who, who follow Biden will know that, you know, there's a term they, they call um, being Bidened, 
And that is, you know, <laughs> it, it's kind of hard to resist the guy because he's just so gregarious and friendly and he's in your face and he, he gets to know you. And he's, he's just, a, he's a really, he, I mean, of all the politicians I've ever covered, he really seems to be a, quite a fine human being, which you don't normally see at that level. And I think Obama got Bidened in a sense and, and became, you know, enamored of the man just as much as Biden was totally admired um, Obama. And so that sort of dynamic played itself out once they got on the campaign trail and once they got in the White House, certainly, and throughout their administration, especially in the later years where, you know, Joe's son, Beau, was ill and, and died. And um, Obama was just a, a really loving friend to, to Joe at that time and was really concerned for him and was offered a, a very big shoulder for him. And, and their wives seemed to get along very well, too. Oh, the, the wives certainly did. You know, they, they've done a lot together on, you know, for military families. They travel together. And, and not only the wives, but the kids, the families, um, you know, Biden's grandkids and Obama's kids, they would have sleepovers together. They would get together for to go out and do stuff. And, I mean, this is why it was sort of an unheard arrangement. And it kind of, in my sense, and especially if you look at it from today's perspective, it gave you sort of a, a feeling of hope and 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 optimism about the way that people should just be with people, you know, and the way that relationships should be. And the president and the vice president really set that model from the top and send that ethical and, and moral sort of principle down to the rest of us on, you know, how we should behave. And that, I think, also is why the relationship was, was such a powerful thing for many people in the country who identified with it, because they saw that decency at the top and they felt, oh, that's kind of a good feeling. And it's interesting that you brought up that, that uh, term Biden, um, because in some ways that I was I was going to ask how Biden didn't become considered because of his experience, his age, the length of time he'd been in office as uh, and where he was from an Eastern elite um, as opposed to this uh, sort of midwest working class hero persona that he has but hasn't that that down home quality kind of played as as old school and worked against joe in the campaign this year a little bit this year well you know it's really difficult this, this i mean you've been you've been watching some of the coverage yeah. and, and some of the accusations of him being too familiar and too close to people and right. i i remember growing up of course i'm in my 60s now and and that was kind of normal for politicians to put a hand on on your shoulder or you know to try and be you know very close and and warm and friendly uh, like an uncle, like Uncle Joe, exactly. And yeah. and I just wonder if uh, in in today's um, politic, if it isn't uh, a little bit old school. See, that's exactly the word I was thinking as you were as you were saying that it is old school, and that's that's the kind of guy he is. He's an old school politician, um, and in this particular era, you know that that resonates in a way that hasn't resonated in the past maybe where we have a, a real strong you know um sort of progressive democratic wing that sort of wants to abandon the old school and 
and Joe is right in their crosshairs for that reason. And even, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who is, you know, she's no spring chicken. She's like 70 years old, but she's also feeling, she's sort of project, projecting a new school kind of a way of, of behaving. Um, and Joe is of that old school, and sometimes some of his, his gaffes on the campaign trail this year have shown that. You know, he, he says things that people don't understand because they are so of another era. Um, so this is a really complicated time for him, and it, I just, you know, it's impossible to know how this will all play out because um, it seems every day brings some new twist or turn. But um, he has a lot of hurdles, um, that's for sure. You've been quoting uh, aides a lot. Were you able to get access to Barack and Joe while working on this book? No. Um, they, I guess the timing just wasn't right for them on this. Um, they helped me, though, get in touch with people around them. I've talked to a lot of people in their inner circles. Um, and I've talked to people outside those circles who are able to sort of reflect on um, the relationship and how what it means for us in America and, and all of that. Um, and I basically have done just a really deep dive on all of the material and information that I could find out there, and you know, from the media, from books and memoirs, and and video, and all of their speeches and and conversations that have been made available. This is an interesting book because you know my last two books were more historic, where you know the characters are all dead, and we've had we have like archives, and we have you know lots of rich material, and and people who who knew those people are willing to speak more freely, whereas Barack and Joe are still, as we know, very much contemporary. They haven't drifted off into history yet, so it makes it a little bit harder to um, to get to, you know, the deeper, deeper levels of, of all of this. Um, but in, in a sense, I, I got the sense, and I was able to, through all of that research and through my own interpretation, I think, deliver really the, the first kind of comprehensive look at what this relationship is. And I know down the road, once they move into history, There'll be other people that maybe come back and, and broaden on it. Maybe I'll come back and be able to broaden on it. Um, once there are archives, once there are people who are further away from them and who are willing to talk a little bit more freely. But right now, this is the portrait, I think, that we have. And, and of course, it would be difficult uh, to access Joe while he's in a presidential campaign. Yeah. Um, and and I don't know why it would be difficult to, to get with Barack. But when you talk about moving into history is where are things going on with uh, Obama's presidential uh, library you know I'm not really sure I, I haven't been following that too much but I yeah and I didn't mean to put you on the spot about that but I was thinking yeah. as you were talking about having access to a lot of papers and a lot of records you know when doing these histories oh yeah um, yeah. that I, I was wondering if any of those kinds of papers were made available to you. And and then it got me thinking about, gosh, shouldn't we be hearing about an Obama library soon? Yeah. <laughs> no, they've been talking about it. And I think, I mean, I, the last I heard it, they were planning, and I think there was going to be something built in Chicago or in that, in the, that area. I was um, thinking Chicago, too. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure exactly, but... Um, you know, and that's the kind of thing. Um, you do need that kind of repository. You need a place where, you know, people can go to do deep research. And, you know, he's still a very new and young president, so we don't we don't really have 
all of that material just yet. I mean, that was what made the, doing the Kennedy and King book so fun and, and easy was that, you know, there are just mountains and mountains of archival information and, and thousands of oral histories that people have done about that administration. And, you know, and I just spent hours and hours and hours going through that stuff. And there are little nuggets you find. You think everybody's been over all that stuff a million times, but there are things that are still there that people haven't seen. Well, it's it's nice with uh, with those two because there's there's also video. Yes, yes. As right. opposed to doing, you know, uh, Adams and Jefferson or something. <laughs> right, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, well, this this is fascinating, and I can't wait to read the book. I apologize that I I, I don't have it yet, but uh, it's it's just coming out this week, and. Um, Steve, I always want to have guests um, share with listeners where they can find out more, not just about the book, Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership, but your other books and and future projects. Do you have a website? Um, Well, I'm mostly using a Facebook author page now that people can look at. I do a lot of, I do some updating on there. I'm, I'm putting, you know, reviews and what other people are saying about the book and stuff that's going on with it so you can just find that under my name Stephen Levingston it's an author page on Facebook and I also have a Twitter account um, where I also do some updating and that's at Steve Levingston not Stephen it's just at Steve Levingston um, people can go there It'd be great and it's uh, it's Stephen Levingston on Facebook and yes right they wouldn't let me do the whole Stephen Levingston for some reason on Twitter it was too long <laughs> <laughs> too many characters yeah um, yeah, it's like trying to put out a book in, what, 145 characters? Right. Um, the, uh, do you know what, uh, what comes next? I mean, obviously you'll be pushing this book for a little while, but, uh, have you already, uh, fleshed out your next project? No, I haven't. I'm always thinking and trying to figure out what I do next, but there's just, um, you know, when you when you start working on a book, it, it has to. It takes a lot of time to sort of get to the right project and make sure because you're going to spend a lot of time on it. So I'm still kind of sorting through things and not sure just yet. More with journalist and author Stephen Levingston about his book Barack and Joe. <laughs>
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place 
where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with journalist and author Stephen Levingston about his book, Barack and Joe, straight ahead. What what was it about these two that made you feel like you wanted to write this book? Well, that's, that's interesting because it's sort of, I didn't realize this, but if you look back at the Kennedy and King book, which was the one previous to this, and this one, they're both about men in very high positions and their relationships. And to me, that's the fascinating quality of what history is about. History doesn't just occur. History is made by the people who are in positions of power working together or working opposite each other or somehow creating history. It's, it's created by the men and women who, who have the power to, to create history. Um, so that's what I did with Kennedy and King. Kennedy and King was a look at the relationship between um, those two men and their impact on the civil rights movement and how King um, influenced Martin, uh, influenced um, John F. Kennedy to be more open to um, civil rights, which he did. It was kind of an interesting um, thing. I hadn't known how, how powerful his, his sway was on Kennedy. And then I, and I thought of Barack and Joe, and I thought, well, here's an interesting end piece to almost the Kennedy and King story, because now we have um, what Kennedy and King did made possible for this relationship between Barack and Joe. We have now the African-American, who is the man in the, in the supreme position of power, where Kennedy was before, and King was trying to influence him. And we have, we have Barack Obama, who was the man at the top of the ticket, and he's being helped and influenced in some ways by, um, by Joe Biden. So it's, and that's how the history was made um, in that relationship. So it's, it's that kind of a thing. I just got interested in the relationships between people at the top. And and interesting that that both of these projects are interracial relationships. Yeah, I, I never thought of doing it that way. But then when I finished this one, I thought, "Whoa, yes, that's true. That's that's how it came. It's come out." And it's, it's and I did see the arc between the two. Steve, of them. it's it's almost you know a black guy and a white guy walk into a bar, and uh, Steve writes a book. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, best of luck with the book. I, I'm looking forward to it um, very much, and I, I apologize I haven't read it before we had a chance to talk, but uh, um, I certainly will be soon, and people are saying great things about it. I appreciate that, and I appreciate the time. It was great talking with you. All right. Take care. Take care. That was uh, Stephen Levingston. Steve is the author of Little Demon in the City of Light and, of course, as we talked about, Kennedy and King, which was named a New York Times Editor's Choice Selection and a Washington Post notable book in uh, 2017. He was a nonfiction book editor of the Washington Post. He has lived and worked in Beijing, Hong Kong, New York, Paris, and Washington and reported and edited for the Wall Street Journal and International Herald Tribune. The new book is Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
If you believe it's the president's responsibility to protect America, why would you downplay a pandemic that is known to disproportionately harm low-income families and minority communities? Yeah. Well, I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. My action was very strong. Yeah, because what I did was uh, with China, I put a ban on. With Europe, I put a ban on. And we would have lost thousands of more people had I not put the ban on. So that was called action, not with the mouth, but in actual fact. We did a very, very good job when we put that ban on. Whether you call it talent or luck, it was very important. So we saved a lot of lives when we did that. We created, I created, we all created together. You helped everybody. The fact is, we created the greatest economy in the history of the world. Best employment numbers for African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, women, everything. The best employment, high school, no high school, college. We had the best economy we've ever had. 160 million people, almost, just short of 160 million people. We were never close. And then somebody comes in, and then somebody else, doctors, and they start talking about the pandemic and about closing. They want to close up our country. I said, wait a minute. We have the greatest country, the greatest economy, and it was coming together even in terms of unity because it was so successful that people that weren't getting along were starting to get along, George. That's the way we solved that problem. But we had the greatest economy ever, and we have to close it. If I didn't close it, I think you'd have two million deaths instead of having... When I closed at the end of January, Joe Biden was talking about, in March, about it's totally over-exaggerated. Nancy Pelosi was standing in the streets of Chinatown in San Francisco late a month, more than a month after that, saying this thing's totally exaggerated, come, you know, to try and build up tourism. And all of these you were people saying it was going to disappear. Was what? You were saying it was going to disappear. It is going to disappear. Mr. President, I voted for you in 2016. I'm conservative, pro-life, and diabetic. I've had to dodge people who don't care about social distancing and wearing face masks. I thought you were doing a good job with a pandemic response until about May 1st. Then you took your foot off the gas pedal Why did you throw vulnerable people like me under the bus? Well, we really didn't, Paul. We've worked very hard on the uh, pandemic. We've worked very hard. It came off from China. They should have never let it happen. And uh, if you look at what we've done with ventilators and now, frankly, with vaccines, we're very close to having a vaccine. Uh, If you want to know the truth, uh, the previous administration would have taken perhaps years to have a vaccine because of the FDA and all the approvals. And we're within weeks of getting it. You know, it could be three weeks, four weeks, but we think we have a Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer. We have great companies, and they're very, very close. We're very proud of the job we've done, and uh, we've saved a lot of lives, a tremendous number of lives. A lot of people got it wrong. They talked about don't wear masks, and now they say wear masks, although some people say don't wear masks. I mean, you have a lot of different uh, ideas. Some people say just leave it the way it is and don't do any shutdowns, and other people say do shutdowns. If you believe it's the president's responsibility to protect America, why would you downplay a pandemic that is known to disproportionately harm low-income families and minority communities? Yeah. Well, I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. My action was very strong. Yeah, because what I did was uh, with China, I put a ban on. With Europe, I put a ban on. 
and we would have lost thousands of more people had I not put the ban on. So that was called action, not with the mouth, but in actual fact. We did a very, very good job when we put that ban on. Whether you call it talent or luck, it was very important. So we saved a lot of lives when we did that. If we didn't close the country, look, we created, I created, we all created together. You helped everybody. The fact is, we created the greatest economy in the history of the world. Best employment numbers for African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, women, everything. The best employment, high school, no high school, college. We had the best economy we've ever had. 160 million people, almost, just short of 160 million people. We were never close. And then somebody comes in, and then somebody else, doctors, and they start talking about the pandemic and about closing. They want to close up our country. I said, wait a minute. Uh, you've coined the phrase, make America great again. Right. When has America been great for African-Americans in the ghetto of America? Are you aware of how tone deaf that comes off to African-American community? Well, I can say this. We have tremendous African-American support. You've probably seen it in the polls. We're doing extremely well with uh, African-American, Hispanic-American at levels that you've rarely seen a Republican have. Uh, if you talk about make America great, uh, if you look at just prior to, and I'm talking about for the black community, you look just prior to this horrible situation coming in from China when the virus came in, that was the probably the highest point, home ownership for the black community. Home ownership, uh, lower crime, the best jobs they've ever had, highest income, the best employment numbers they've ever had. If you go back and you want to look over many years, you could just go back six or seven months from now. That was the best single moment in the history of the African-American people in this country, I think, you know, I would say. Well, I mean, your statement is, though, make it great again. So historically, uh, the African-American experience, especially in these, out, these ghettos that have been out of red line, uh, historically, these ghettos that have systemically been set yes, up and treated yes. the way that they have been, the conditions of the drugs, the guns, and everything else that actually created the symptoms yeah. for what we see uh, that you uh, profess to be just the democratic cities in themselves, uh, these things have historically been happening for African-Americans in these ghettos, and we have not been seeing uh, a change. Uh, quite frankly, under your administration, under the Obama's administration, under the Bush, under the Clinton, the very same things happen and the very same systems and cycles continue to, to continue to ensue. And we need to see, because uh, you say again, we need to see when was that great, because that pushes us back to a time in which we cannot identify with such greatness. And I mean, you've said everything else about choking and everything else, but you have yet to address and acknowledge okay. that there's been a race problem in America. So if you go, well, I hope there's not a race problem. I can tell you there's none with me.
We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>